Thanksgiving is Thursday, correct? Now, if we were all sitting around the table and we're getting ready to enjoy our Thanksgiving feast, what are some of the traditions that you observe during that time? Old ladies first bickering. Okay. And it's kind of interesting because Thanksgiving, Christmas is a time that all the family gathers together, right? And it's kind of interesting when you get all together because it's like this, this reuniting of the family, you know, that gathered from all the four corners of the world, wherever they might be, uh, just to remind you why you live at all the four corners of the world. You know, you get reminded of all of that stuff there. So it's kind of an interesting time. Anybody else? Do you have a tradition that just before you eat, you kind of go around the table and say what you're thankful for? Okay, let's pretend today that we're sitting down to Thanksgiving dinner and it's your turn to say what you're thankful for. What would you be thankful for today? Okay, the presence of God. Okay, and I, I, I can't stress that enough, probably. Uh, you know, that's what we gather together for is to experience the presence of God. But you can practice that presence every day of your life. God is everywhere all at the same time because he's an immense God. He's bigger than his creation. So when he goes somewhere, he doesn't have to move. It's really kind of an interesting concept. So remember, God is present all the time. What else would you be thankful for? Family. Family. Oh, yeah. Family. Family is what's gotten us where we are, huh? You know, when you stop and think about it, wherever we might be, we can credit a great deal of it to our families. You know, it's credit or blame, whatever you choose at that point in time, you know, however you view your circumstances. But we can, we can give credit to our family, can't we? What else are you thankful for? We live in America. Okay, we live in America. What, is America the best country in the world? Yes. I'd say second to Switzerland. You know, I kind of like the Swiss Alps. You know, but America is a great country, isn't it? Yes. Is it on the rise or the decline? Depends on how you look at stuff, I know. But because we live in America, we have an opportunity. In fact, we have, I believe that we as Christians have a responsibility to pray for our country, yes. to pray for our leaders. Uh, it's easy to criticize, isn't it? It's easy to criticize leadership. But I think we ought to pray for our leadership that God would be made known through them and that God's will be worked out in our nation. So that's a, a good thing. What else are you thankful for? Friends and relationships. Well, you know, God created us for, for relationships. Did you know that? You know, when you stop and think about God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they didn't need anything, but they created mankind. And so, you know, when you stop and think they didn't need it, and, you know, God is completely self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything to be added to and be happy. Or to, but he chose to create the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, have the greatest relationship known uh, to the universe. And now we get a chance to emulate that. And so as we think about relationships, we, we get a chance to reflect who God is in the relationships that he's given to us. So relationships are very valuable. What else? Health. health. Oh, okay. And if you've ever had a health problem, to have health, you know, is, is really a, it's kind of one of those sighs of relief that you breathe because, ah, oh, I've got it back. I feel so much better. Uh, I remember for a long time I had a back problem. And uh, for about 16 months, I just couldn't, I could hardly move. And when the pain went away, it was like I was a new person. I just went, ah, so health, very valuable thing. Okay, anybody else? None of you had said anything spiritual. (laughs) So let me lead us in that direction. I'm really thankful for the fact that God reveals himself to us. You know, if he didn't reveal himself to us, there would be no way for us to find out who he is. 
And he's revealed himself to us in the Bible. As you look through creation, he's revealed himself through creation. And it's interesting in the, in the book of Romans, uh, he says that there, mankind is without excuse to, for him to think that he could not know there is a God. Because he says it's made evident to them just by seeing what God has created. So when you walk outside today and you see the beauty of the day and you see the birds flying and you see the water in the, in the, in the, uh, across the way there and you just see what God has made, you have to come to a conclusion there is a God. Because that takes, I'm going to say this, that takes far less faith to believe that there is a creator than there is to say, you know, all of this just happened from nothing. You know, that just to me is, uh, that takes far more faith. That, you know, uh, when, I, when, I look at, when I look at this building, I know that there's somebody who built it. You know, they created it. They, they designed it in their head. They put it on paper. There's a bunch of guys that came out and built it. I, did, I don't think, you know, automatically that, gee, just out of the ground, this building started to appear. You know, and all of a sudden we get the chance to, you know, it has heat, it has windows, it has all this stuff. It just didn't appear. You know, somebody created that. When I look at you, I don't think, wow, what a great mistake that was. You know, what a, what a, gee, that was just a, whoo, man, you dodged a bullet, but you know, gee, you came out pretty okay. And when I look at you, I think there's a creator. Somebody made you like you are. And so it takes far less faith for me to believe that God is the creator. He's made everything that we have. And so today we're going to come to a passage of scripture. Uh, we've been studying through the book of Acts. And we're going to find a place where Peter and John express some great boldness. I don't know, how many of you feel like you're really a bold person? You know, the more ticked off I get, the more bold I become. You know, have you ever noticed that? I have, uh, I have situations in my life where I can be very bold uh, because I'm ticked off. But yet, we're going to discover something today about boldness. I hope you'll find four things today that you'll discover about boldness that will help you to be more bold in your faith and uh, as you talk about who Jesus is. The first one that I'm going to talk to you about today is that talking about Jesus is going to disturb some people. You know, if you talk about Jesus, you're going to disturb some people. You're going to make them angry. I don't know if you've watched the news very much after the Las Vegas massacre there at Mandalay Bay and, and the concert that uh, got shot up. Uh, but I remember our vice president called us uh, to attention. And he said, as he addressed the issue, he said, our thoughts and our prayers are with those who have been affected by this great tragedy. Our thoughts and our prayers. Now, who in their right mind would say, you know, that's a bad thing to say. But there were a lot of people who said that was a bad thing to say. I don't know if you saw the reaction of the politicians and the things. I remember one lady, uh, House of Representative member, she stood on the floor of the House of Representatives, and she, she referred to that comment by the vice president, and she said, you know what, thoughts and prayers are what's gotten us here. We don't need thoughts and prayers. It's time for action. As if God, the God of the universe is an inactive God. And I thought, you know, it really shows me the disparity between people who have faith and people who don't, and how violently opposed those two forces can be at times. It's interesting, because on the other hand, I read a, a thing that's last week by Barbara, Barbara Brown Taylor. Uh, she wrote a, a book, God in Pain, and she says this, It is curious that people who are filled with horrified indignation when a cat kills a sparrow can hear the story of the killing of God told Sunday after Sunday and not experience any shock at all. 
You know, we can get outraged at some pretty minor things in the big scheme of things, you know, uh, a cat killing a sparrow. But when we talk about the God of the universe coming in the form of Jesus to die on a cross for mankind and to be put to death by the Romans at the at the behest of the Jewish people, you know, we, we don't find that shocking too much at all. In fact, we find that maybe as kind of a cool little story, maybe a folk tale, uh, maybe somewhat removed from reality. But I want you to know today that if you're truly a lover of Jesus Christ and you make mention of him, pretty soon you're going to divide people. You're going to find people that are opposed to what you have to sell. You're going to find people that are opposed to just the mention of the name Jesus. Now, it says here in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, that the religious leaders of Jesus' time were greatly disturbed by what Peter and John were doing. Now, let's back up a little bit. Last week, what did we talk about? We talked about Peter and John meeting a guy at the temple gate uh, called Beautiful. And as he was getting ready to go in, this guy's asking for money. And he says, hey, you, you have any money to give me? And Peter and John said, ah, I don't, money, silver and gold, we have none of. But what we do have, we give to you in the form of the Holy Spirit. And they healed the lame man sitting right there and he jumped up. Now, you would think that the people around there would rejoice over that. They, you know, Peter and John here bringing the, the glory of God into this situation. They, they heal a man, and you would think that everybody would get excited and on board with that. Wouldn't you think? This man had been sitting there for most of his life. He was 40 years old, and he'd been sitting there. People had been going in and out, in and out of the temple gate, and they saw him every day, and they thought, man, what a poor existence that is. Maybe they'd flip him a few coins and help him get some food to eat for the week or whatever. Uh, but they, by and large thought there was no help for this man. But Peter and John come along, and they heal him, and he gets tremendous help. He gets tremendous help. And I'll notice what, what the reaction of people here is here in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, okay, the religious ruling people of the day, they came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. Okay. Now remember, after they heal this man, Peter and John, uh, specifically Peter, he gives this little discourse, he gives a little sermon about where the power came from that healed this man. He gives credit to Jesus. And so in verse 2, the, the religious leaders were greatly disturbed. And it gives the reason why they were greatly disturbed. Because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Not simply they were saying, you know, this life is not all there is. At the end of this life, when you pass from this life to death, there's going to be a resurrection. You're going to, this isn't the end. There's going to be heaven that awaits for those people who are plugged into God through the life of Jesus Christ, who have received forgiveness of their sins and who have committed them, their lives to follow him. There's going to be life. Now, is that a good message or a bad message? I think it's well, it's a good message. But it's a bad message if it's not true, right? And these people believed, in fact, the Sadducees didn't believe there was a resurrection of the dead. In fact, they believed that once you died, that was all there was. And so therefore, when you died, there was no resurrection of the dead. There is no afterlife. There's no coming back and being with God in heaven. There's none of that stuff. So they were opposed to it because they didn't believe it to be true. What you believe determines your hope. What you believe will determine your hope. You believe there's a God in heaven that's going to call us home to be with him someday? Then that's your hope. Your hope is to live a better existence than what you experience here on this earth. It's going to be a whole lot better. 
So therefore, they were disturbed. They were greatly disturbed. Now, they were disturbed on a couple of fronts. And as you really look at the life of the Jewish religious leaders, you'll find that they were disturbed because they didn't believe the message. They were also disturbed because these these apostles of Jesus, these disciples that were going out and recruiting people, were taking from their flock. I don't know if you've ever gone to church very much, but churches are very protective about their people. Have you ever noticed that? You know, if some of you start going to a different church, Pastor Mike gets his, you know, he he just goes crazy. Not really, but a lot of pastors would. You know, I want you to go to the church that God has called you to go. I want you to go to the church that you can be a part of, that you can participate in, that you can be the body of Christ in. I want you to go to that church. If it's this church, and I hope it is, then so much the better. But if it's not, I want you to find the place that you can be the body of Christ. That's the goal. Because, you know, in the end, I'm going to die. In the end, you're going to die. And I want to be with you in heaven. And I want to be able to kind of rub shoulders with you and say, you know what? When we were down there on earth, you know, here's some of the cool things we saw God do, the cool things we saw God do through us, cool things we got got to take advantage of in the kingdom of God. And man, it was awesome, wasn't it? And I want to be able to say with you, wherever you go to church, yeah, that was really cool to see God do that. Now, these guys, however, they were very protective about their, their Judaism. And they thought that if anybody violates the laws of Judaism, oh no, things are just not right. And so therefore, they were very protective of their people. They didn't want to lose anybody. And I believe that to be true too. I don't want to lose any of you. But if God calls you somewhere else, that's going to be just fine. But remember this, talking about Jesus is going to disturb some people. If you don't believe that, Just go to your work, go to your neighbor's house or go in your neighborhood, go to your family sometime and just talk about Jesus and see what happens. Just see what happens. You know, you'll find some people get very quiet. You'll find some people get very opposed to you. That can't be true. You know, it violates all the laws of science. It violates everything that I believe in. It violates all this stuff. And so therefore it can't be true. And you'll find that not only will they just you know, disagree with the truth of what you say, but they'll become very passionate about how they approach it. So be careful there. Now, don't let people's reaction, here's the bottom line to this point, don't let people's reactions determine whether or not you will be bold. Don't let people's reaction to you determine whether you're going to be bold about Jesus or not. Don't let that happen. Okay, number two, boldness will have mixed results. Okay, Sometimes you think, well, boldness is going to, people are going to love it when I'm bold, you know, they're confident, everybody's going to pat me on the back, everybody's going to be in favor of what I'm in favor of. But we find in Acts chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, that these religious leaders, what did they do? They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. Now, if you get arrested, get arrested in the morning, okay? That way you don't have to spend the night in jail. You just go to court. And that's what happened to these poor guys. They got arrested at night. There was no court, you know, they, they, so therefore they got put in jail for the night. You know, they got a, like a free night in the jail. I don't know. That was really supposed to be kind of funny, but it wasn't. Okay. Uh, so they stayed in, the, they put him in jail till the next day. Verse number four. But many who heard the message believed. Now, there were some people that were opposed. In fact, they were so opposed that they put Peter and John in jail. Now, there were some people that believed in the message and they grew, and the, the number who believed grew to about 5,000. Some people said, you know, this boldness, this message that they're proclaiming cannot be true, so therefore we're going to put them in jail. 
Some other people said, you know what? This is life-changing for me. I believe what they say, and therefore, I'm going to follow. I'm going to become part of this fledgling church called Christianity that's soon, you know, they didn't realize it, but soon going to be spread to the entire world. And we are the recipients of that. Now, who was it that arrested Peter and John? It was the religious people. Have you ever noticed that? You know, the, the religious people, the Jewish religious people, sometimes just kind of don't have the big scheme of things. All they know is their little kingdom, and they try to protect their little kingdom. And so the Jews of Jesus' day, they arrested Peter and John. They were the religious people. Jesus was a threat to them, and so Peter and John, as they preached Jesus, became an extension of that threat. And so they said, oh, we can't put up with this. We're going to arrest them and put them in jail, thinking that that would squelch them, thinking that that would quiet the church. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that that doesn't quiet the church. In fact, when you start arresting people, you know what happens? People hear about that. And when you arrest people and they stand true to their faith and stand true to their calling, they let people know. Now, one of the things that I wish would happen in the United States is that we would get arrested a little more often. Not for doing dumb stuff. Not doing, for dumb, not doing dumb stuff, but for the sake of Christ. Okay, For the sake of our belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you stop and think, and we've been praying for the persecuted church here for a couple of weeks, and when you stop and think where the church flourishes most is where it's under the most persecution. Because you know what happens? It refines the people that are in it. Now, I'm, I would think that as I look across you today, that if we were the persecuted church, every one of you would be here next Sunday. However, we're an unusual church. Okay? Most people in most churches across the land, if they were going to be under persecution, the threat of violence or death next Sunday, if you show up, you're under the threat of violence or death, most of them would stay home. Many of them would stay home. I shouldn't say most. Many of them would stay home. You guys are an unusual lot. You would be here because you would let that purify your faith. And what do we believe about God? You've heard me say it before. Whenever we're faced with a decision, we have to ask two questions. Number one is, who do we trust? Number two is, what do we believe? Who do we trust? What do we believe? Now, let's say that next week we were going to be under persecution and we were going to be arrested if we came to church. Who do you trust? I would trust God. I would trust Jesus. I would say, if God has led me to do something, he will certainly protect me while I do it. Or I will be persecuted for his glory. So if it comes right down to it, is it my comfort that God is most concerned with? Or is it his glory that he is most concerned with? And I'm going to tell you, he's most concerned with his glory. And if he puts you in an uncomfortable situation, it is to bring him glory. And so that's what we're here for, is to bring God glory, to make him known among the people that we are surrounded by. So therefore, next Sunday, we're going to be arrested or persecuted, hurt, we're going to be shot, we're going to be whatever, uh, because we come to church. So who do we trust? Okay, we trust the God who has said, hey, I want you to gather. Hebrews 10.25 says, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, but all the more get together as the day draws near. The day of what? The day of Christ's return. Okay, what, what could very well precede Christ's return? Persecution. Okay, so, so if God has told me he wants me to get together with you believers so we can encourage each other, then we ought to do that. And we, if we believe that God is in it, he will protect us and he'll make, let it happen, or he will use that 
for his recognition. Okay? So, now, who do you believe, okay, and who do you trust? What do you believe and who do you trust? I believe that I am here for God's glory. I trust that he will do that through my life, through whatever circumstances I find myself in. So I want to encourage you to go through a little exercise this next week. Who do you trust and what do you believe? You know, what do you believe about yourself? What do you believe about your role in the world? What do you believe about who's responsible for you? What do you believe about who's going to supply for you? What do you believe about who's going to protect you? What do you believe about that stuff? And then live boldly in light of that because boldness is going to have mixed results. Guy tells a story that while he was in seminary, uh, he was in seminary in Chicago, and he was getting ready with a bunch of his seminary buddies to go to this event called Promise Keepers. It was really popular uh, several years ago, uh, numerous years ago. And uh, he, they got in this taxi cab, and they were late. There were six of them in this ca- taxi cab. And this taxi driver, I'm sure, felt a little bit overwhelmed because they're really pressing to get to the stadium and, and to get to the event. And, and they wanted to get good seats. And, and that's all they could talk about. Oh, we're going to be late. Let's hurry. Oh, could you, could you hurry, driver, and get, pass and do whatever? Kind of like, have you ever seen The Amazing Race on TV? You know, they really encourage their taxi drivers to beat the other taxi drivers to the destination. But they were really in a hurry and everything. And, uh, and they got in a traffic jam and traffic came to a screeching halt. They were stopped. And so they were debating, what should we do? What should we do? What should we do? And one guy says, you know what we could do? We could get out, and we could probably get there faster walking. And, uh, and you know, that gained quite a bit of good support. You know, the healthy young men, they said, yeah, we could do Yeah, that makes some sense. Let's, let's do that. And then one guy, you know, peeped up from the back. He's kind of squished behind all these other guys. He says, hey, wait a minute. You know, our taxi driver, if, he, if, he, if we bail out on him, we're going to pay him for what he's gotten us to, but he's stuck in traffic. He's not going to make another dime. And, you know, it's a, I, I think that that would be kind of ungracious of us to do that. And these other guys, you know, they're in seminary, so they're trying to be, you know, walk the straight and narrow. And they still, they start thinking, and this guy's put them on a little bit of a guilt trip. And so the guy's name was Michael. So the story goes, he was the good guy. And uh, <laughs> the really good guy. In fact, he was the best guy in the cab. But, uh, but he, uh, he go, he, he's talking, and, and pretty soon the taxi cab driver goes, you know, that's, you know, that's the kindest thing anybody's ever thought. When people get in my cab, they never think about me. You know, they just think about themselves and where they're going and how soon they're going to get there. And the guy starts talking to him. You know, he's a seminary guy. So he's talking to him. He starts sharing Jesus with him. And he talks about, you know, well, you know one of the things we want to be is gracious to you because we've been graciously treated by the universe who didn't hold us uh, to the sin that we have committed and didn't hold us uh, responsible for that, but put all that on Jesus and let him take the punishment for us and really told him the gospel about Jesus. Now, the man didn't make a decision there, but nonetheless, their patience gave the opportunity to share about Jesus. So even though there's mixed results that you're going to get from this, sometimes we need to be patient and, and realize that the goal is not to get to our destination, but the goal is the journey to the destination. It's really what we're about, is that as we think about, you know, if you boil it down to the beginning and the end, you know, the beginning is your birth and the end is your death. Well, you know, you, are you in a hurry to get, you know? But actually, you go beyond that. And so the journey through life is the important thing. The journey to a destination in a taxi cab is the, the greatest thing that you could experience. So, 
focused on the destination that we miss the journey and all the opportunities that we might have to be able to share Christ with people in our daily lives. Okay, there's a third thing that I want you to know about boldness, and that's boldness is rooted in the name of Jesus. It's interesting when you read through this passage in verses 5 through 10, it says this. Now remember, Peter and John have been put in jail and they're waiting the next day to have their hearing in court. Okay, the next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. Okay, they have the cream of the crop here. They have the religious leaders of the religious leaders. Verse number seven, they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. Okay, now, they're not really too upset about what they've done, but they're really kind of upset about the power behind what they have done. And so I asked the question, uh, what, by what power uh, or what name did you do this? In other words, by whose authority did you heal this lame beggar at the temple gate? Now, I don't know. We can, we can get so sidetracked with technicalities that we miss the big picture. They had missed the big picture. The big picture was that God had shown up in a way uh, through these two men, Peter and John, and had healed someone that had been lame since birth. For 40 years, this man had never walked. Every day, he was brought by someone and placed there so that he could beg. Every evening, somebody would come and pick him up and take him home. He had never walked. And so, therefore, they missed the big picture of the display of the power of God. They missed all of that. And so they wanted to know, well, who's the boss? Who told you that you could do this? Okay. And uh, uh, in verse number eight, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, okay, I want you to circle that, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, because if you're going to be bold, you must be bold because of the Holy Spirit in you. When you get bold on your own, you can get in a lot of trouble. And I don't know if you've ever been bold on your own, you know, and, and just kind of popped off with what you thought should be right and wrong and, and later regretted that. Uh, but that's been my situation a few times. Okay? Only when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter and John, uh, or Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people. Very respectful. Number nine, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. You know, and, and, you know, they say, by whose authority did you do this? You know, that's kind of a, a clouded question, you know, well, you know, and so he clarifies it for him. And I love that fact in his boldness. If we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. Okay, now what is it? He said, it is by the name of Jesus Christ. He didn't say, it's by the power of God living in me in the form of the Holy Spirit. He says, it's by the name of Jesus Christ. Now, what's in a name? To us, it's just a a designator that differentiates you from someone else. I remember growing up, and we lived on this little horseshoe street. It was called Holly Way. And on this horseshoe street, there were 12 mics. 12 mics that lived on that street. Okay, I was one of 12. And so when a mother would call out, you know, at dinner time, Mike, come home for dinner, 12 kids showed up. 
you know. Not really. We knew our mom's voice because our moms were like shepherds, and we never mind. Uh, but, but we, you know, being Mike wasn't something that was really unique to me. You know, it's something I shared with eleven other guys. In fact, my very next door neighbor was Mike. You know, and so Mike Lapasinski, and uh, here we are, next door neighbors, same name. You know, virtually the same mom because that back in the day everybody took care of everybody. But it says, in the name of Jesus. Now, what's in a name? A name represents who you are. Okay? Now, if I operate of the government of the United States of some authority, right? I have some delegated authority. By whatever authority the United States government gives me, then I operate in that. And I'm operating under the name and the authority of the United States government. It could be an ambassador to a foreign country operating under the name and the power of the United States government. If I say something, it has some weight to it. Also has some responsibility. So therefore, you have to be careful what you say. But it says here, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Now, the name of Jesus has two things. Number one, it has strength. The name of Jesus has strength. Now, in reference to Jesus, it goes on in verse number 11 and says, Jesus is, okay, and that if you're going to operate in the name of something, you have to know what that name is. Okay, first of all, the name is Jesus, and it is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Now, that's an Old Testament phrase there. And they had given that because Jesus is a cornerstone, but he has he's been rejected. If you mention the name Jesus today, it gets rejected probably 50% of the times out of hand. Okay. There is no Jesus. There is no God. Uh, we are the products of, of the, the universe. Nothing becoming nothing, making something. And I've never figured that one out. But the name of Jesus has strength because he's the cornerstone. Now, one of the things a cornerstone does is it keeps a building straight. A cornerstone is the one that they measure everything else from. It becomes the measuring point. And so it also makes alignment. I don't know if you've ever put bricks together. Um, I'm not real good at that, but you can run a string down there, you know, and you keep them aligned, and you, you tie it off to one corner to the the first stone, the first brick, and then you run it out there where you want it to end, and then you put everything else along that line. That's what a cornerstone does for you. It keeps things aligned. Now, do you need alignment in your life? Yeah, because we can run them up, can't we? If you read much or if you do stuff, you find that there's a variety of opinions out there about everything. And so, therefore, we need to be aligned according to the truth. Jesus tells Pilate one time, uh, he says, I have come to bear witness of the truth. I've come to bear witness of the truth. Okay, I've come to let you know what truth is and what that truth does in your life. He says, I've come to bear witness of that. I've come to testify about that. And so, therefore, Jesus says, uh, another time he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the way, the truth. Now, we need to know what's true. Uh, have you ever done something that you thought you were doing it based on the truth, found out later it wasn't? You know, and you, oh, man, you know. Wouldn't it have been good to know ahead of time what the truth is so that you could have made a straight course for, for your destination? But sometimes we get off track. You know, when you stop and think about the relational difficulties that many people have in our world today. If you had known then what you know now, would you have done things differently? If you had known the truth about someone that you didn't know before, would you maybe have done something different? 
Sure, we all would have. So Jesus comes and says, I'm the cornerstone. There's strength in the cornerstone. And the strength is revelation of truth. I can reveal the truth to you. So therefore, we can avoid a lot of mistakes. You know, uh, I'm, I'm a big believer that we don't have enough time to make all the mistakes in the world. Okay? You don't have enough time. So learn from other people what the truth is. Jesus says, I am the truth. Learn from me what the truth is. So therefore, the name of Jesus has associated with it the strength of truth that says, here's the real deal. Okay? The name of Jesus also has power. To know the truth and not to be able to do the truth is, is a difficult task. So Jesus is the truth. He reveals the truth. He gives you alignment to the truth. And he also gives you the power to do it. Now notice this power comes uh, revealed in verse number 12. It says this, right after verse 11, and I want to read both of these together. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Then he goes right into verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, no one other than Jesus, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Circle that word saved. Saved from what? Saved from ourselves mostly because we make sinful mistakes. Okay, we make sinful choices sometimes. We just sometimes dive headlong into stuff we know that we shouldn't do. And so we need to be saved from ourselves. We need to be rescued from that. And that's what salvation is. It's a rescue from all of the wrong that you, that you have done, could do, or are doing. Okay? It's a rescue from that. That's why it's called salvation. And he says that what happens in this salvation experience is that you get transformed. Why do you do what you do? do you, have you ever thought about it? Sometimes I wonder to myself, why do I do what I do? You know, and I'm going, to say, I'm going to suggest that there's an answer for every one of us, and I believe it's always the same, and it's this. It's the third grade answer, because I wanted to. You know, why do you do what you do? Because I wanted to. And that's really the truth of the matter. We end up doing what we desire to do. Now, this salvation comes, and what does it change about you? What does it transform? Largely, it transforms your desires. The things I used to want to do, I don't want to do anymore. And the things that God wants me to do now are the things that I want to do. It's not that I have to do. It's that he's transformed my desires and I now want to do those things. And so that's this great power that comes over you to transform you. Not to just make you a little bit better. You know, not to just make you a, a higher functioning form of what you currently are. But it transforms you, makes you something completely different. And so that's where the power is. Now, boldness, number four. Boldness is born from conviction. You know, have you ever thought about what you're really convicted about? Uh, I see the political debate you know, quite often in our, in, in our nation. And people get passionate about what they believe. Now, they don't know if it's true or not, but they're passionate about it nonetheless. You can, we could divide this crowd real easy. I, mean, I, could, I could mention a couple of political uh, situations and probably divide this crowd. And we would get probably, if we could discuss it for very long, we might get mad at each other. Okay? Because we're, we're passionate about what we believe to be true. And that's why boldness is born from conviction. Now, what is conviction? Conviction is the belief that what I really believe is true is really true. What I really believe is true is really true. Now, can you believe false things to be true? Can you be 
Can you have conviction about false beliefs? Yeah. That's why we divide over. Now, what, what do we know about truth? Who is the truth? Jesus is the truth. And that's what unifies most of us. Okay, most of us are on most things. In fact, it's going to unify all of us on most things because we believe that there's a source of truth out there. And if we believe that Jesus has said this, then we can be unified about that and we can have great conviction about that. I believe that in the Christian community, what we lack most often is conviction. That what we really believe to be true is really true. It's nice to believe it. It's desirable to believe it. I hope it's true. But yet that conviction that comes from believing that it's really true and it's from God. And so therefore it's rooted in truth. You know, we're we're a little foggy on that because I believe that if we truly believe that, that we would be much more bold in the stands that we take. I'm going to just finish out uh, through verse 22 for you here. Because boldness is born from conviction. Now notice what Peter and John do. Um, When the Jewish religious leaders saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say, okay? Because they wanted to dispute them. But the proof's in the pudding, okay? They couldn't. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and then they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Now, they, 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 they realize that there's power in that name, and they can't allow them to speak in that name any longer. Then they called them back in, because uh, they had dismissed them, and commanded them not to speak or teach in, at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? You be the judge. You know, I, I love the way they did that. You know, these religious leaders, should we trust you or should we trust God? Oh, what do you say now? You know, so the best thing sometimes when you, when you, when you don't know what to say is to say nothing. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now, I want you to circle that word, we cannot help. They were compelled because they had conviction that what they were speaking of was the absolute truth. Now, not only was it the absolute truth, but it was vital for people to know the absolute truth. It was vital. And those two things will prove to you what your convictions are. The things that you believe to be absolutely true and vital and necessary for other people will be what you talk about. That will compel you. And they were compelled to talk about Jesus. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. Any further threats, actually, after further threats, they let them go. Now, wouldn't you like to know what those further threats were? You know, if you don't, we're going to... I'd like to know what they were because, man, it didn't deter them whatsoever. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. Uh, For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. 40 years old. They'd seen him all of his life. They knew what was true about him. They knew what was true about him for 40 years of his life. They knew what was true at that 40th anniversary when he was healed. They knew what was true about that. They saw it. They see the evidence of it. They could not deny it. And 
what were Peter and John compelled to do? Compelled to talk about it. Not only talk about what had happened in the man's life, but talk about the source behind that healing. And so today I want to challenge you that we might find ourselves in strange places, but our convictions will determine the course of our life. I read a story this last week about a a missionary, uh, actually about a guy that visited Manila, and this is years ago, and there was a whole subculture of people that lived in the dump of Manila. Okay, there were people that didn't have anything. In fact, they would send their kids out every day when the trucks would come in and dump their garbage. They would go get building materials or whatever, and they would make their little shacks. And they would go out and find food and uh, do the uh, and store, you know, store, get whatever food they could eat for the day. Every day they would send their kids out and do that. And they, there was a whole culture of people there living there, poor as all get out, poor of the poor. And as he looked around, he noticed that there were some other people that seemed to have a little bit more on the ball, you know, that maybe were a little bit above that, but still lived in the same circumstances. And what he found was that there were people that were so compelled by Jesus Christ that these people needed to hear about him that they went there. Not only did they go there, they lived there. They gave up their lives, sacrificed all of the comforts that they had, and lived in the dump in Manila. They built their little shacks as well. They went out and got the same food, ate the same food, lived in the same shacks, so that they could gain the right to share the love of Christ with these people because they were so convicted that these people need to hear about Jesus, that we will sacrifice our own personal comfort. We will identify with the losses that these people have have experienced, and we will be like them. Now, nothing says love more than that. Jesus himself says that greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for the ones that he loves. Jesus does that exactly for us. He laid down his life because he loved us so much. Guy went to the doctor one day and he's having allergy tests. And uh, he knows he's allergic to something. How How many here suffer from allergies? Okay, Cindy's just, she suffers from allergies and she's getting ready to go have another test to see if she's allergic to more stuff. And, uh, and how do they test you for allergies? They stick you with about 18 different needles that have the stuff that you're maybe allergic to. And then they stick you and they say, don't scratch it. Don't scratch it. You know, it's like a baseball player. You know, he gets hit with a baseball. And there's an unwritten rule that says you can't rub it. Don't rub it. Don't act like it even hurts. And they're wincing with pain and they're crippled. And, you know, but didn't hurt me. You know, and that's what happens when you get your allergy tests. And so he was sitting there, and, oh, and he was thinking about it. You know, he's, and, and he's a spiritual man, and he was making some spiritual applications to it. And he says, you know, the thing that I'm allergic to, they test me with to see if I have a reaction. Now, if I have a reaction to that, you know what they're going to do to me? They're going to give me more of that same stuff in smaller doses so that my body builds up a resistance to it. He says, you know what? He came to a conclusion. He said this. He says, the cure for fear of failure is not success. It's failure. Having a failure, learning to deal with it. Having another little failure, learning to deal with it. He says, the cure for fear of rejection is not acceptance. It's rejection. Okay? Because if you get accepted, you still have a fear. But if you experience rejection and you experience rejection, pretty soon you learn how to handle that. He says, you have to be exposed to small quantities of whatever you're afraid of. That's how you build up immunity to fear. 
most of us are not bold because we're fearful, right? We're fearful about what people will say. We're fearful about what people will think. We're fearful about our, how equipped we are to handle those situations. But I want to suggest to you, if you're fearful, and that's why you're not bold, go out there and experience a little bit of fear. You know, they tell you in the sales industry that, you know, it's a, it's a game of numbers. And there's going to be so many no's before you get a yes. Going to be so many no's before you get a yes. So go out there and get your first no today. Then get your second no. And then you're getting closer to the yes and the yes. And that's the way it is with our fear. The more we experience the fear, we realize it's not quite as damaging as we thought it would be. It's not life-ending. It's not even maybe life-altering, except maybe for the good. Because it will teach me how to have those little doses of fear that help me to understand that God is above all of that. And God will see me through. God will hold me by the hand. And eventually, I will experience success. But success is not the goal. The goal is to experience the fear so that I can realize who do I trust and what do I believe. Always ask yourself those two questions. 